This episode was brought to you by State Farm. Buying a house in 2024 can be something extremely joyful, but also extremely stressful when you think about all the paperwork that you have to file. But like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. That's the phrase that will help you feel good knowing that you have people who care to help you file a claim or find the coverage for the things that you want to protect. After an accident, you may be worried. Who do I call? What do you do next? I drive peacefully knowing that I have people who have my back. In reality, finding good insurance doesn't have to be something that is complicated to you. State Farm has options to fit your unique needs, which means you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, or reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. We have the problem of distrust that is growing. We have a set of sustainable development goals that require collaboration. And it's hard to get collaboration if people don't trust their relationships with each other. What started out as a race for our attention has turned into these direct manipulation channels where you can target and persuade a society at scale in ways that have never happened before. If you watch Fox News, you are living on a different planet than you are if you, you know, listen to NPR. Imagine inside a household when you've spent an hour, 20 minutes talking, 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 trying to, you know, address all their issues. And suddenly, you know, the grandfather says, bring out all the children. And you just like get to vaccinate these children. And you feel that they believe you. This is the Global Goals Cast the podcast that explores how we can change the world. This episode is about trust and the global goals. We're going to explore whether it's possible to achieve that master plan in a time of distrust, or actually, whether the sustainable development goals can be a way to rebuild trust. Let's try to define trust first of all, which isn't easy. I've been reading this new book by Rachel Botsman. Can I read you a quote? Knock yourself out. Trust is the remarkable force that pulls you over that gap between certainty and uncertainty. Trust is a confident relationship with the unknown. It is trust that has allowed the internet to flourish and take off in ways that were unimaginable when it first started. Okay, I get your quote. So it's like getting into a stranger's car that shows up outside my door and takes me somewhere. And that's Uber. Because it creating trust requires you give up control. You evaluate the risks, and when the negative outcome is less likely than the positive, then you get into that car. By the way, what is your Uber rating these days, Claudia? I haven't managed over the 4.5 yet. <laughs> Since I'm full of the quotations today, here's another one from Rachel's book. It's from a guy called Morton Deutsch talking about that leap of faith. Trust involves the delicate juxtaposition of people's loftiest hopes and aspirations with their deepest worries and darkest fears. So how can a massive plan like the Sustainable Development Goals that is totally dependable on partnerships and coordination can possibly succeed if there is no trust in the system, if citizens don't trust their governments, if you don't know that what you're reading is real or fake, and therefore there's a lack of trust in one another? I spoke to Don Kettle about this. He's professor of public policy at the University of Maryland, and he's written a book. The link is in our website, and it's called... Can Governments Earn Our Trust? Thanks, Don. Gracias, Don. Trust really has to do with our confidence that as we engage in a 
relationship with our government in particular, but with other institutions and other individuals as well, that we have a kind of confidence in the way in which they're going to be able to respond to us, that there'll be a kind of fidelity to the set of values that we care about, that in the process of this relationship, bad things are not going to happen, and that we can ensure that the kind of relationship that we want will happen as a result of this. Distrust is what happens when we create a relationship the people involved in the relationship on the other end aren't faithful to values that we hold, and bad things happen as a result. So, Edie, as you know, I happen to live with an expert on trust. That is so useful today. Particularly for this episode. So, <laughs> Richard Edelman, my husband, runs the largest and longest-running study on trust in the world. The big issue for 2018 in trust is the collapse of trust in media. 75% of our respondents said that they're afraid of the effect of fake news. It makes them unable to judge the performance of a government leader or actually of a brand. They're actually in a world now of distrust in information sources. It's so profound that they actually don't trust a friend, family, or a person like yourself anymore, preferring instead a expert in academia or a technical expert from a company or even a CEO because they have credentials and have trust. And the consequence of this is substantial because ultimately you want people to have enough facts to make good decisions. And at the moment they can't distinguish between fact and fiction. And when that happens, they start to rely on emotions. They're susceptible to fears. What is particularly uh, alarming is that more than half of the people have signed off altogether from mainstream media. They find it elitist, politicized, and in fact doesn't cover people like them. So with a landscape of trust looking less than stable, what does that mean to achieving the goals? Don Kettle again. We have the problem of distrust that is growing. We have a set of sustainable development goals that require a commitment to those goals and collaboration and achieving it, it's hard to get collaboration if people don't trust the relationships with each other. And we run the risk of getting ourselves in this awful situation where the thing that we've agreed to do is the kind of thing that we can't make happen because it founders on barriers and boulders and reefs of distrust that exist in so many places and which may in fact make things worse. Claudia, I know you were just in San Francisco, my hometown, talking to Sandy Parakilas and Aza Raskin from the Center for Humane Technology about how social media is either creating or magnifying distrust. Talk me through what they said. That newsfeed that you see when you open up your Facebook or your Twitter, that makes you think that you're in control of what you're reading. But is it? So the way that news feeds work, and this is not just true of Facebook, it's true of Twitter and other feed-based social networks, is that they are trying to find the thing that you're going to like the most, and they put that at the top. So what that means is that they are trying to get signal from you, whether it's, you know, whether you like something, whether you share it, whether you, you know, take some action. Sandy expands on the issues that are at the heart of this story. Truth and trust. Because these algorithms are pointing people to the content they're most likely to engage in or engage with, they are much more likely to boost up content that will make you angry because that actually turns out to be the thing that's much more likely to get you to continue to use the service rather than something that is just sort of moderately interesting and banal. 
And what this means is that technology might be helping to erode trust. We see the splintering and the re-splintering of opinion. Rather than making the world more open and connected, rather than leveling the playing field, we are questioning here if technology is exploiting divisiveness in society. Here's what Sandy's colleague, Aza Raskin, and a voice that you might recognize, have to say about this. What started out as a race for our attention has turned into these direct manipulation channels where you can target and persuade a society at scale in ways that have never happened before. And in the U.S., we start to see that the left and the right see completely different movies about what's going on. Yeah. We can't agree on the basic facts. One of the biggest challenges we have to our democracy is the degree to which we don't share a common baseline of facts. What the Russians exploited, but it was already here, is we are operating in completely different information universes. If you watch Fox News, you are living on a different planet than you are if you, you know, listen to NPR. So I love how we snuck Barack Obama in there. Fake news, whatever you want to call it, is not new. President Lincoln was plagued by fake news. Antony and Cleopatra were ruined by rumors. And it comes from fear. What we have is a problem that on the one side is eternal and has been going on as long as there are people. But on the other hand, we have, because of the rise of social media, because of the rise of the internet, and because of the nature of the relationships that it makes possible, we've gotten ourselves into a situation where it's that much easier to create distrust that much more quickly. The First Amendment was from a time when speech was expensive and hearing was cheap, right? Like, it was hard to get your message out, but there wasn't so many things around, so you could just listen to whatever you wanted. And now it's flipped, where speech is so cheap that anyone can speak, whether that's Russia or, like, a blogger mom from Utah. But because there's so much content out, it's whoever controls where you're getting information, where you can hear from, that has the true power. Iri, let's assume that this thesis is right, that these rumors sometimes spread as divisive digital content designed to appeal to our emotional side are not just problematic in elections in high-income countries. It is problematic everywhere. It might be actually stopping parents from protecting their children all across the world. What we do in this podcast is take the really big ideas and focus them down to the specific. So now we're going to look at how mistrust is dragging out the eradication of one of the most crippling diseases on the planet, and that's polio. There are people in the health community, Edie, that think that polio is not a major focus of the SDGs and is not even listed as a target. But before we get into the polio story, let's take a moment with Bill Gates, whom you and I spoke to a couple of weeks ago in Davos. Polio eradication has been one of the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation priorities, and they have helped India to eradicate the disease nearly seven years ago. We're on the verge of eradicating polio. We had less than 60 cases last year, and we still have to get rid of it in Pakistan and Afghanistan, and then it'll become the second disease to be eradicated after smallpox. You know, it's great science, great impact. There's a lot of heroes out in the field. Aisha Wallace-Mall is one of the heroes that Bill Gates referred to. 
She's a former Norwegian soldier, diplomat, and journalist. Her parents are from Afghanistan, but she was born and grew up in Norway. She's an external relations officer for the WHO's Global Polio Eradication Initiative. And by the way, she wears very noisy jewelry, and my producer was so (laughs) cross with me that I didn't ask her to take off her bracelets. She told me that in Pakistan, like the U.S., like the U.K., vaccines are not trusted. She spent the last few weeks in Karachi, joining the team of local health workers visiting homes where parents were refusing to give vaccinations to their children. And as you're going to hear, convincing mothers of the benefits of the vaccine is far from easy. I just don't want to give it to my child. You know, and that's that's the starting point. Then she goes through the religious aspect and we try to answer that. Then she goes through the demand issue that the streets are filthy, the government is not doing anything. Why all this focus on polio? Then on the Western involvement that this is something that is going to, to sterilize the Muslim population. And then when you try to answer that, she goes over to, but I just really don't trust what the vaccine contains, and I've heard that children get sick. I also spoke to Seth Berkeley. He's the CEO of Gavi, the Global Vaccine Alliance. Claudia, you know him, right? Yes, I have worked with him and I have worked with Gavi. And I give them a lot of credit because what they have managed to do is work with all stakeholders of society to make sure that together we get vaccinations all over the world. It is before Gavi in the 80s, Organizations like UNICEF managed to get a huge world coverage of vaccines, getting more to 80% of the world population vaccinated. But then we reached a plateau, and thanks to Gavi, not only we managed to get out of the plateau, get to more than 90 or 92% of the world's children's population being vaccinated, but also get more vaccines into the package that kids get. Traditionally, there was huge trust in the medical system, in doctors, in public health workers. And then if there was problems, you had community leaders who would also reinforce that trust. But if you use the particular example of Pakistan, you know, polio eradication has been going on for more than 20 years. And so in many communities, they have seen month after month, people come and bring polio drops, but not bring anything else. So one of the questions over time is, well, we don't see any polio. Why, you know, is this being done? And that raises questions. And then second, as you know, there's been some unfortunate issues, as you probably know, the CIA used when they were trying to track bin Laden, used some misinformation and said they were out doing uh, surveys for vaccinations. And that type of thing can be used as propaganda and create mistrust. Even in the most deprived areas, everybody has access to, or most people have access to internet. WhatsApp, it's a powerful medium. And they're receiving all these short videos and they spread like fire in the bush. Distrust in vaccines is a global story. I moved to the UK 20 years ago, just before a big vaccine fake news story hit the headlines. 20 years ago, Andrew Wakefield published a paper that said that the MMR vaccine was associated with autism, which turned out to be data that was falsified. It turned out not to be true, but it shattered public trust in vaccines. And we saw vaccinations drop. 40% of French people disagreed with the statement that vaccines are safe. In Russia, 16% felt that vaccines are important. In Italy, 14%. So we are seeing in the West a huge effect of trust. 
in the developing world, we also see this trust effect. And, you know, it's hard to be as explicit, but in Nigeria, there's very low coverage rates in the north of Nigeria, for example, and efforts have been done to make the supply chain work to provide vaccines. And what's interesting is that even when the vaccines are there, people don't come to get them. And I suspect this is because of trust as well, trust in the system, trust on whether the government is able to deliver, whether people are there when they come, et cetera, et cetera. So this becomes a really important issue. When you see a mother and she's telling you that I will not allow you to give drops to my kids because it's going to make him sick, of course you know that it's not right, but you have to feel her fear. I think a lot of it is in listening. A lot of it is in just giving them the time they need. And of course, you know, trying to engage them in some kind of discussion, explaining the different positive aspects of the vaccine. A lot of these women and girls, you know, they love talking about clothes and like they're really good with embroidery. So in between their household chores, they're sewing stuff. And I sit and I talk to them about the work they do at home. To me, it's like reconnecting with the basics of what it means to be a human. We are all human. I should point out that Aisha emphasized how she was accompanying female health workers from Karachi who are in their own communities every day. This is not top-down health policy. These people are working with their neighbors in their own communities. Have a listen to the story she told me about visiting a grandfather. At that point, we didn't know much about this household because we had not succeeded in engaging them in any kind of communication or dialogue. And God on the inside, and we walk up the stairs, we get up and it's one older man who's kind of like the elder in the family, surrounded by like 16 women and babies everywhere. And you know, I immediately smiled. I was like, wow, you sure know how to keep quiet. And they all like cracked up. So I just like sit right down and I'm telling him, I'm like, why? My dear, my dear uncle, my grandpa, my father, I call him like numerous things, you know, <laughs> just to create like a relation with him. And then just tell me, you have so many beautiful grandchildren. Why are you not vaccinating them? And he starts laughing. They tell me that they will get like this. They tell me that we keep hearing rumors that the vaccine is not good. And then I ask them, have you tried to seek information? You know, and they're like, no, no, who has time for that? This, that, you know? And then of course he's the only one or, or the male family members are the only ones that could actually get this information because these women, they almost never leave their homes. So then I sat down with them and I told them, ask me questions. And if I don't have the answers you want to hear, I will try my best to bring someone else. This man who just initially like can seem hostile to someone is actually just a concerned grandfather. Before we hear Aisha again, remember what an intangible thing trust is. Imagine inside a household when you've spent an hour, 20 minutes, talking, 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 trying to, you know, address all their issues. And suddenly, you know, the grandfather says, bring all the children, bring out all the children. And you just like get to vaccinate these children. It is an unbelievable feeling. And you feel that what you said has a direct impact on them, right? That they believe you. That's the moment that trust is built. Truth, trust, and technology 
are set to become even more entangled. As the tools become more sophisticated, it's going to be harder to know what is true or whom to trust. So either you have an iPhone X or an iPhone 10 or whatever they're called, right? Exactly. It's why my pictures on Instagram are so good. Well, you show off, but I'm not sure you're going <laughs> to like what Asa told me. As we already know that Facebook knows more about you, can predict what you'll click on, what you like, better than your spouse does. Last year, the iPhone 10 came out, and it has the ability to track your face in 3D, so any app developer can watch your face in real time. And what data would Netflix, would Facebook, would any advertiser love? Instead of just knowing how long you've scrolled and what you've clicked on, they'd love to know what emotions you were feeling when what they saw... What you make. Exactly. What are your micro-expressions? What's going on behind your eyes? And when you can correlate this at societal scale and be like, ah, for these kinds of people, they feel a little sad when they see this kind of thing. Oh, right in this video, this is where people lose attention. Let's just tweak it a little bit. And you combine it with all the data that Facebook already knows about you and the ability to generate any video of anyone. Let's say I wanted to make you the perfect political ad. So I find on Facebook some videos of your mom and I extract her voice and I generate a new voice that sounds a little bit like your mom, so just that you trust it. And I take pictures of your dad and some of your best friends, and I combine them to make a political ad with the voice of your mother, and you're just like, you're gonna have to believe it because we're humans. That's just, that's how we operate. Just imagine if companies like Facebook who use all their amazing brain power and algorithms focusing on the goals and making the world a better place in making sure that they bust bubbles so that people can have a comprehensive understanding of an issue such as migration as opposed to being trapped in their bubbles. This is going to require them to change their incentive structure, though, because it's currently driven by user growth, by monetization, and that's to maximize shareholder value. These companies are in the business of capturing as much of your attention as possible. And the way they do that is they use a number of brain hacks to find psychological vulnerabilities in people to get you to keep scrolling, keep looking, because they make more money the more that you look at their content. If people are using these platforms to manipulate an electorate at scale, if they're using it to spread a message of genocide, clearly if you are the technology platform that's being used for that purpose, and you have built a platform that enables that, you should have some liability for this absolute worst case scenario. This not only affects technology companies, but also the entire area of trust in the system, including the non-for-profit organizations that I mentioned to you. Tell me what the trust barometer says about trust in NGOs at the moment. So for the second year in a row, NGOs now have lower trust than CEOs of companies. And one of the main reasons is accountability and transparency. And that happens both ways, Edie. Between donor countries and implementer countries, there is an issue of distrust where countries that are giving the money to be implemented somewhere else are saying, like, are you implementing it properly? Are your health workers in place? Are you reporting it uh, properly? Corruption has played a role in eroding that trust. The other area of distrust between NGOs are the public. Are just to know that for every dollar that I'm giving, what is happening to the dollar that I'm giving? Are you really implementing the issues of, you know, like sexual behavior on the on the ground have been affecting trust overall, and that has had an impact. 
So we heard from Aisha about building trust one-to-one, individual health workers going door-to-door. But this isn't always possible. Sometimes governments need to build trust with their citizens. And Claudio, just remind me where governments are in trustworthiness in the Edelman barometer. The lowest on all categories. If there is one institution that has no trust whatsoever in the world, or the lowest, is government. A government official is by far less trusted than a CEO. The only other lowest category after the government are journalists that used to be, 10 years ago, really like the force that was going to come and defend citizens. Now governments and journalists are the least trusted institutions in the world. I'm going to try not to take that personally as a journalist, but... I want to talk about the government. So one of our partners, Apolitical, put me in touch with Ian Walker in Australia. He runs something called the New Democracy Foundation. He puts together these things called citizen juries. They're like a jury for a criminal investigation, but they actually deal with the toughest questions that sometimes tangle governments up. Like, what should we do with the nuclear waste that we generate? Or how should we live within our means? We look at what holds the world back. It's that we just can't reach a trusted decision. Any decision you come up with, people can pretty easily erode in a 20-second tweet. So stop telling politicians to ignore public opinion. Start coming up with something better than public opinion. And it's public judgment. So what Ian highlighted was that the big issues don't always have to divide along party lines. When you get a group of people off social media and into a room for a good length of time, and we're talking like months, like three to six months looking at one of these issues, they can tackle really contentious issues in a very sophisticated way. So the government had a project looking at whether they could put nuclear waste in one of the parts of Australia. They got a really diverse group of people together. The plumbers, the childcare worker, the teacher, the accountant, the dentist, and so forth. To listen to experts from both sides of the debate They took time, months, to listen, discuss, and write. What I do see is a more nuanced community feedback with a unanimous group of people standing behind it um, that actually offers an informed view to the parliament. And that's what we see that citizens are capable of. Um, And all I ever point to is they came back with nuance, they came back with evidence and a rationale. They got beyond the simple good guys and bad guys, yeses and noes, to say, we don't like this aspect, we are open to this aspect. And we think that's going to be more constructive in a discussion like this. Idi, what do you think about this area of facts? I mean, do you remember when bloggers started, you know, like that's probably like 10 years ago, if not more, when social media started? I was too young then. (laughs) You are a journalist and probably your training was bring the pros, bring the cons, and then do an analysis of a situation, correct? It's important to figure out where you're getting your facts, right? So it's also important to look at a diversity of sources. So for example, I get an email once a week and it's news about Trump from both the left and the right. And it completely helps to change my perspective of how the US political scene is being reported. We're gonna have a link to that, in fact, in our website. We always give you some actions to take. And can I just be totally honest, this was not an easy episode to take actions. This is not as easy as taking your reusable coffee cup to the coffee shop. So here's what we came up with. First of all, can you distinguish real from fake news? And if you go to our website, you can take a quiz. Okay, Claudia, here's the quiz. Every child must be vaccinated in order to eradicate polio. True or false? True. You got it right. 
Okay, so for more, check out theglobalgoalscast.org. So the last one comes from the New Democracy Foundation, Ian Walker. He said, when you're starting a conversation about something, pose an open-ended question. Encourage people to ask for information rather than just rushing to the top of mind first thing that they have to say. That's what Ian does in his citizen juries. Okay, so the other thing we always do in our episodes is give you three facts to take away. Claudia, what are your facts? 50% of the world have disengaged from news, and 50% consume news less than weekly. Nearly 7 in 10 people worry about fake news being used as a weapon against them. Another interesting fact comes from one of our guests today. You think you're anonymous, but you're not. It only takes 10 likes on Facebook to know your psychology in the Big Five test better than a coworker, and it takes just 300 to know you better than your spouse does. Iri, in this episode, we decided to take trust and explore whether the Sustainable Development Goals can actually be delivered if you live in a world of distrust. And we conclude that it's impossible if we continue collapsing our trust in each other, in our institutions, in our governments. The other part that we are very convinced about is that the global goals or sustainable development goals can absolutely be considered as a way to restore trust in the world. The sustainable development goals are a master plan out there in the universe that can be used as a framework of action that are not political, that are just partisan, created by everyone that took five years to put together this master plan and can become the Northern Light, the framework of action, the guiding principle. From my perspective, when I spoke to Aisha, she was really moved when the grandfather decided to vaccinate the kids in his house. She was elated, you can just hear it. That empathy, that listening, that emotional investment that it took. I found it so difficult to pin down a description. Trust is so unquantifiable. Rachel Botsman writes that trust is a bridge to the unknown. There's an element of fragile mystery, like a soap bubble. Coming soon is the first episode in our three-part mini-series about polar explorers, activists, and father and son, Robert and Barney Swan, who recently walked to the South Pole to highlight climate change and to show how renewable energy can really make a difference. We will follow their story through audio diaries they recorded on the expedition, and as you would expect from the Global Goals cast, we will have plenty of interesting insight into some of the issues around their mission. And follow us from Water Day to Earth Day, finalizing in Ocean Day. And if you want to make sure that you don't miss that or any of our episodes, subscribe to us at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And please follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Global Goals Cast for the latest news and developments. And that was Iri Losh, and I am Claudia Romo Edelman. Thank you so much for being with us. This is the Global Goals Cast. Thanks to Harmon, the official sound of Global Goals Cast. Music in this episode was by Andrew Phillips, Angelica Garcia, Simon James, Ashish Pillowal, and Ellis. We would also love to thank our new partners, UNICEF USA, United Nations University, 
Gabby, Red, Women Deliver, One Young World, Slow Food, and Apolitical for joining Global Goalscast as we continue spreading awareness about the SDGs and sharing inspirational stories to showcase the progress towards their achievement. You can also find a full list of our amazing partners on our website, www.globalgoalscast.org. We couldn't have done this episode on trust without the support of Edelman and the 2018 Edelman Trust Barometer. This podcast is powered by CBS News Digital. Are you ready to turn your best ideas into a thriving online business? Introducing Shopify, your no-excuses business partner. You might not realize, but our podcast, More Than Mammies, it's a business. And we started it, of course, to talk about maternity, not to become an e-commerce expert. So yeah, we needed some help selling our merch and getting our store up and running. Another sale. Shopify is a commerce platform revolutionizing millions of businesses worldwide. No matter if you are a garage entrepreneur or a big business, Shopify is the only tool you need to start and grow your business without the struggle. With Shopify single dashboard, you can manage orders, shipping, and payments from anywhere, giving you the insights you need wherever you are. Sign up for $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash sonoro or lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash sonoro to take your business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash sonoro. ¿Estás listo para convertir tus mejores ideas en un negocio en línea exitoso? Te presentamos Shopify. Tal vez no lo sabías, pero nuestro podcast More Than Mammies es un negocio y lo empezamos por supuesto para desahogarnos y hablar sobre la maternidad, no para convertirnos en expertas de ventas y del e-commerce. Así que sí, necesitábamos ayuda para vender nuestro merch y poner en marcha nuestra tienda. ¿Y cómo suena con Shopify? Llegó otra venta. Shopify es la plataforma de comercio que está revolucionando millones de negocios en todo el mundo. Ya seas un emprendedor desde tu casa o desde donde sea, Shopify es la única herramienta que necesitas para iniciar, administrar y hacer crecer tu negocio sin dificultades. Con Shopify puedo gestionar pedidos, envíos y pagos desde cualquier lugar, brindándote toda la información y estadísticas de tus ventas al detalle. Regístrate para un periodo de prueba con tan solo un dólar al mes en shopify.com barra sonoro. Todo en minutos. Ve a Shopify.com barra sonoro para llevar tu negocio al siguiente nivel. Shopify.com barra sonoro. 